Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Antioch the Golden, Queen of the East. That was the name of that city, Antioch. A beautiful, busy port city, a couple hundred miles north of Jerusalem. I showed you a, a map last week of that city, and we'll show that map here in a little bit. But we're, we're, we're continuing on in our study next, uh, when God opens a new chapter of Gospel Impact. Our study in Acts 10 and 11, we've been, I think this is our sixth lesson in these two chapters but Antioch the Golden, that beautiful port city, it was a center for luxury and culture. Because of that, it attracted all kinds of people, including wealthy, retired Roman officials who would spend their days chatting at the baths or gambling at the races. It was a great Antioch, a great commercial and political power. It was the third largest city at the time, the capital city of Syria, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, following Rome and Alexandria. Antioch had magnificent buildings that helped to give it that name, Antioch the Golden Queen of the East. It, was the, it had a main street. Its main street was more than four miles long, which that's a long street when, when you're not talking about driving in a car. You're talking about by foot or by horseback maybe. A four-mile-long main street that was paved in marble. Along the sides of the street were these marble colonnades, and it was the only city in, in, in that time, in ancient history at that time, that had light, that its street was lit at night. It had lighted streets, and it was just this beautiful, luxurious, uh, cultural, political center where people would want to go, would want to retire. And it was a leader in wealth and in luxury and in culture, but it was also a leader in wickedness. Second, possibly at that time, only to the city of Corinth that we know much about because of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And, and in this city, all the Greek, the Roman, the Syrian gods were honored. The local shrine, the temple there dedicated to Daphne. And if you know anything about history, a very wicked, wicked deity that was worshipped in some very wicked and immoral ways. This is the city of Antioch. As I describe that city doesn't sound like maybe if you were getting ready to plant a church where you might want to plant a church, or maybe it does sound like a place that definitely needs a church, but not real friendly to the gospel. Doesn't sound like a place that if I wanted to find a, a spot where everyone's going to be excited about Jesus Christ, I, I probably wouldn't go to Antioch in this day and age. And, and sometimes in the midst of the climate in which we find ourselves, I hear people talking about America or even California. Oh, I, I got to get out of this place and I can't wait for it. And if God leads somebody away from California then, then, or, or out of America to serve him somewhere else, that's to them. But, but as Christians, we're not called to find the most comfortable place to be. We're called to serve where God has placed us. And what we find is this center of luxury, of culture, of wealth, but also this center of wickedness, one of the most wicked, vile cities of that day, what we find is God used the early believers, the early followers of Christ, to, to establish a church that would change the world. And today I want to bring a message entitled, Churches That Change the World, because you see the city of Antioch that we're going to see this morning was exactly where God chose to plant the very first church that would include large numbers of both Jews and Gentiles. 
Up to this point, the Jews had been, for about a decade after Christ's death, as we've studied, the Jews have been preached to and have been evangelized. And then we saw Peter preaching to Cornelius uh, there in, in Caesarea, that Roman centurion and all of his family. And all of a sudden, Gentiles are starting to get saved. And we find here this church really, at least recorded, the first one that included large numbers of Jews and Gentiles together. For those that are maybe new, and I've met several that are first time with us, a reminder uh, by way of introduction, in that day and age in the culture, there were basically three groups of people. There were Jews, those that were from the bloodline of Abraham from the Old Testament. There were Samaritans. You've heard maybe of the story of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I was born in San Jose in Good Samaritan Hospital. We still talk about being a Good Samaritan. Well, a Samaritan was what they considered a half-breed. They were the Jews when they had been taken into captivity. Some Jews intermarried and had children with non-Jews, with Gentiles. Their children, half-Jew, half-Gentile, were called Samaritans. And the Jews in the Samaritans culturally had major issues, religiously had major issues, politically, all of that. And then there were the Gentiles, those that were not Jews and would be from other countries. And so this is, we're studying when the gospel begins to go to the Gentiles. By the way, we should be glad that the gospel went to the Gentiles because we, we received the gospel throughout history, throughout the centuries because of the gospel spreading to these people. And so that's where we find ourselves, and we'll throw that map up just so you get an idea of where we're talking about um, uh, geographically. Jerusalem and Israel right here, and then we have Samaria where the Samaritans were, and we have Jerusalem, and when the, in Acts 8 where we studied when Stephen was martyred, the, the Christians were scattered, they went to Judea, some went over here to Cyrene in Egypt, Africa area there. And, and then in Cyprus, and we're going to read some in a minute, Phoenicia, and then we have Antioch right up here. And so men came from Jerusalem, men came from Cyrene, men came from Cyprus, Cyprus, I'm sorry, and I was thinking of Cyprian, Cyprus, and uh, we have a Cyprian family in our church, and Antioch, and they converged here, and that's where we find ourselves geographically today. Time-wise, we're about a decade after Christ died. Geographically, we're about a couple hundred miles, 200 to 300 miles north of Jerusalem there in Antioch. Take a look at our text. We'll read these 12 verses. I told you last week we would probably pull three messages out of these 12 verses. Last week, I preached on the fact that often fruit in our lives, it takes scattering and it takes suffering. Today, we're going to look at, at, the church, at the churches that change the world. Don't you want to be a part of a church that changes the world? I know that I do. I want to be a part of a church like that. And isn't that what we need in 2020, churches that change the world? Oh, we, we just, you heard that song, they sang, one day there will be healing. Healing is only going to come. The only one that can bring true healing is Jesus Christ. Every problem in our world is a sin problem, and Christ is the only one that has the answer to our sin problem. We want, and so Jesus is the answer. We need in our world today churches that will change the world around them and not be changed by the world around them. Acts 11, verse number 19, the Bible says, Now with they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, back in Acts 8 years ago when Stephen had been martyred, um, the Christians scattered. They traveled as far as Phoenix or Phoenicia, that is modern-day Lebanon, Cyprus, that island, and Antioch, capital of Syria, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. So when, when the disciples had scattered, when Stephen had been martyred, they preached the word to the Jews. The gospel had not yet gone to the Gentiles, but they went to the Jews everywhere and told them the Messiah you've been waiting for all through the Old Testament has come. Jesus is here. Verse 
Number 20. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, the Greeks, the Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. Nobody told them you can't preach the gospel to everybody, so they did, and they saw some Gentiles get saved. Now notice this, verse number 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, kind of the capital of the new group of believers, these these Christians, these followers of Christ, was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth, who? The Christians of Jerusalem sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, and with purpose of heart uh, that they would, they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost, and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. See that there? And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church, and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in where church? In Antioch, verse 27. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth, a famine through the, throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. These 12 verses, we see the church at Antioch. We see that because of the scattering, disciples from Jerusalem went up to Antioch and and preached the gospel as they got there. We see that others from Cyrene that had heard the gospel and from Cyprus, they made their way to Antioch, and they began to preach to Gentiles. And we now have a church here at Antioch, and this church, as you study the course of Acts, would be used to change the world. It is this church, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but that would be used to send out the first missionary that we see, uh, missionaries by the name of Barnabas. And Saul, Saul whose name would be changed to Paul. You ever heard of him? The apostle Paul, kind of a guy that wrote more books than anybody in the whole Bible. This is the church that would be used to commission and send these men out to begin in great ways to turn the world upside down, with the, especially the Gentile world, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This church set in motion some things that you and I are still partaking the fruits of today. A church that changes the world. What churches, I want to give us a few characteristics this morning. And here's what what I want us to do, because sometimes when we say a church that changes the world, man, I, I want to be a part of one of those. I want my church to change the world. But we think of it kind of nebulously. Like, I sure hope Liberty Baptist Church changes the world. I hope that this church over here and that Bible preaching church over there changes the world. But what is the church? And we've talked about this a lot when we've been apart from each other. The church is the people. And so when we say churches that change the world, what we're really saying are a group of Christians that change the world together. And so we look at these characteristics. I want you and I want me and I want my family and your family to take inventory and say, which of these characteristics are we lacking? Where are we struggling there? Yes, corporately, but also individually. And I want to give us a few thoughts from this passage. Number one, the first thought, churches that change the world, what do they look like? Churches that change the world are, number one, gospel-centered. 
gospel-centered. Would you look and read with me the last four words of verse number 20, beginning with the word preaching, the last four words of verse 20. Let's read it nice and loudly together. Ready? Begin preaching the Lord Jesus. One more time. What does it say there? Preaching Why did this church change the world? It's what it says is what these people, what they were doing, these disciples in Antioch, their purpose was to preach the Lord Jesus. We have a whole lot of different preaching today. You can can go online, you can find podcasts, you can tune into churches, you can find churches that'll preach just about anything that you want. And if you're a a right-wing conservative politically, you can find a church that's going to be preaching all about right-wing conservative politics. And if you're a a left-wing liberal, you can find churches that are preaching all about left-wing liberal ideology. And and if, if your hobby horse is this or your hobby horse is that, you can find a church that will preach all about that. But the churches that change the world are the churches that the gospel is the center, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you come to church, you don't have to wonder, I wonder what hobby horse Pastor Ryan's going to be on today. I wonder what opinions he's going to spew out today. I wonder what he's going to give us about this current event. And by the way, I do touch on current events because the Bible principles are relevant to our current events, but that is not my priority. When we come to church, we ought to know, what are we going to sing about today? We're going to sing about the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we going to preach about today? We're going to preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the fact that the first song, only Jesus. They didn't know what I was preaching today. In every song we talked about, without him, we could do nothing. The Bible says, Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing. In our church, in your life, and in our family, we need more of Jesus and less of me. We need more of the gospel and less of man's wisdom. We need more of the Bible and less of man's opinions. We need more of scripture and less of tradition. And again, traditions aren't all bad and ways of doing things aren't all bad. But if they're not in line with scripture and if they're detracting from us, preaching Jesus through our lives and through our church, we have gotten off track. Churches that change the world are gospel-centered. It's all about Jesus. Here we see they were preaching the Lord Jesus, more of Jesus, less of me. Nicholas Ludwig said back in the early 1700s, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That, 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 That song that we started this, what did it say? I don't care if they remember me, only Jesus. Somebody was saying that 300 some years ago. I don't care if they remember me. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. This is not my kingdom, and it's not your kingdom. This is not, I hope the Lord will use my life to influence people, but this is not about my legacy or my, my, what, what I leave. This is about uh, us serving the King of kings and making an impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did they say? Sirs, we would see Jesus. When we go to work this week, people need to see Jesus and not us. In our homes, our children need to see Jesus and less of us. At church, people need to see Jesus. We need to make much of Jesus in everything that we do. Is it any wonder, the Bible tells us in verse 26, they were, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Is it any wonder they were called Christians first? We, we think of Christian as a really common label that people all around the world know that term. It was a, they didn't give that label to themselves. It was a label given to them here in Antioch. Some people say it may have been a nickname. Others say it may have been a derisive term, almost like, look at those, those, those Christians. They, they, there's everything in their whole life is all about Christ. And they may have meant it deri- derisively, but what a great testimony. 
Even if it was meant as a negative, could, could anything better? And for us, we think, well, do you believe in Christ? Are you a Christian? And we kind of think, well, I believe God exists, so I'm a Christian. For them, being a Christian was much different. It was somebody that rem- it changed everything about their life. The gospel had so come into their lives that people said, those are those Christians, the, the band of those that, that walk like Christ, those that, are, that look like Christ, that, that talk like Christ, that act like Christ, that speak like Christ, those are those Christians. How do you become somebody that's known as a Christian? Your life needs to be gospel-centered, all about lifting up the name, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Orange County doesn't need another social club. Newport Beach doesn't need another entertainment center. We don't need another religious institution. We need a place that people can count on. When they come, when our doors are open, they will hear Christ preached and magnified and high and lifted up. They will know that we preach Christ. If you invite a friend to come to church, by the way, I can't promise if you invite a friend that they will not be offended. But but if they are offended, I pray they're offended because of the truths of Scripture, not because of my mishandling of the truths of Scripture. Hopefully, if you invite a friend, and I hope you will, and a coworker and a neighbor to join you in church, you can be confident that if they come, they're going to hear scriptural truth. They're going, not going to hear Pastor Ryan's, his hot take this week and what he thinks and, and his opinion and, and his political leanings and whatever it might be. No, we are going to lift up Jesus. And when Jesus speaks to political things, we'll speak to those things from scripture. But it's not about us. It's about Jesus. A church that changes the world is gospel-centered. Number two, number two, a church that changes the world here in Antioch is soul-conscious. They preach to the Jews and the Gentiles. Notice verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Notice this. And a great number believed, and notice that word, and turned unto the Lord. They turned from their lives. They turned to the Lord. The Bible says in verse 24 at the end, and much people was added unto the Lord. For them, it wasn't us for no more. We're just going to live our lives as comfortable as we can and try to stay as safe as we can. And we, we got saved. Somebody told us about Jesus, and now we're just going to enjoy it. We've got our fire insurance. We're never going to spend a day in hell, and we're going to enjoy that till the day that we die. No, this church right here was all about who else can we tell about Jesus? Who else can we reach? Who else can we see turned to the Lord. And the Bible says a church that has a heart for people, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed. A great number didn't believe because they were sitting inside their church singing together and nobody knew it. A great number believed because everywhere these people went, they shared the truths of Jesus. Have you ever been saved? Do you know Christ as Savior? Has anybody ever showed you that you can spend eternity in heaven? Have you heard of the Messiah? Everywhere they went, and I don't, they don't give us all the details, but you don't see a great number turned to the Lord and added unto the Lord unless there's a church that is soul conscious that says, we have the answer, they have the problem, we have the cure, we've got to share it with him. How are you doing and how am I doing being soul conscious? Well, I'm glad somebody told me, but does it stop with you? Does it stop with my family? They were gospel-centered. They were soul-conscious. Every one of us, by the way, being a witness is not something that should be outsourced just to the pastor or the paid staff of the church. We are all, as Christians, called to be witnesses of Christ. In our circles of influence at work and on social media in our neighborhood and when we go to the grocery store and at the coffee shop and with relatives, we are called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. You know one reason why some churches aren't changing the world? Why, why sometimes it seems that the world is winning? I think it's because we as Christians have grown complacent in our witness. 
being soul conscious. I'm glad today we opened back up our bus routes and several of our bus riders are in here and others are in the, in, in the Spanish ministry. And, and we had yesterday a great number that came out and, and went out and let people know that we have a bus ministry that will bring people to church. And we had sanitation guidelines in and every temperature was taken and social distancing and all of that. But today I heard because of the efforts of yesterday, at least I've heard of already three different families are in church today for the first time because our church yesterday went out to say there's a church that cares for you and we want to share the good news of Jesus Christ with you. How are we gonna change people's lives unless we care for their souls? In his commentary on Colossians, R. Kent Hughes writes of the story of a missionary to Africa who shared his testimony. There was an elderly, elderly woman who had been reached with the gospel and this woman, could, she was blind, she could not uh, read of course, she could not write. But she wanted to share her newfound faith with others. And so she came in Africa. She came to the missionary and, and she got French. French was the language of that nation. And she went and got a Bible, a French Bible. And she asked him, she said, would you please underline John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And she said, would you underline that and then would you mark the page so I can find it? And, 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 then, and, and then give that to me. And she didn't tell him what she was going to do. And the missionary wondered, I wonder what she's going to do with that. And so one day, according to Hughes in his commentary on Colossians, this missionary, missionary told the story. He followed her to see what she was going to do. And she, he watched as she went to the local school. And as school was dismissed and, and the children were dismissed out the front door, she stood there and she would ask a, a boy as they came out or a young girl as they came out, she would say, do you know how to read French? And they would say, yes. And probably in French, I guess they said we, oui, I don't know, but, and, uh, and, and, and that might be the only French word I know, so I can't do any more of this illustration in French, but she would open the, open the Bible, and she would say, what is this to the page, and what does that say, the words that are underlined, and, and they would read John 3.16 in French, and then she would say, do you know what that means, and she would share her faith. According to the missionary, according to the story in that, in that commentary, the missionary said that there were, there were 24 of those schoolboys that that lady led to the Lord that became pastors. 24 of those young boys came to know the Lord. More people came to know the Lord but grew up to become pastors. I would say that that lady changed her world changed the world of a lot of families. Why? Because they were soul conscious. I'm glad there was a church in Northern California that 32 years ago had a heart for souls and encouraged people to invite their friends and their neighbors and their coworkers to church. And there was a, a lady named Denise England that had a coworker who was probably somewhere around 30 years old and, and a single mom that had a nine-year-old son. And she invited her coworker, whose name was Bobby, to come to church. And that was my mom. And I'm glad on that Sunday I came to a church and that pastor lifted up Jesus and he preached. John chapter 3, verse number uh, th 3 through 7 in there. Marvel not that I say unto you, ye must be born again. And I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I heard a gospel-centered message from a soul-conscious church. I mean, I tell you, my world was changed. My life was changed. My family was changed today in California. There are four generations of my family worshiping God in Bible-believing churches today in California. Why? Because a church was soul-conscious. Churches that changed the world are gospel-centered and soul-conscious. We have people in our church who write every week of the, of the year. They write handwritten notes, include gospel tracts, and mail them. They have mailing lists, to, and they cover entire cities, and they co cover entire regions with that. Uh, I don't know what you can do, but when was the last time you did something to share the gospel with someone? 
That same Nicholas Ludwig that I referenced before, he said, my life must be about promoting the name of Jesus Christ and his glory. I hope someone knows Jesus or knows him better because I lived. What a great statement. I hope someone knows Jesus or knows him better because I lived. Those are Christians who will change the world. That's what they did. They were soul conscious. I've got to move quickly. Number three, they were grace-filled. Look at verse number 22. Verse number 22, then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, they didn't have social media. They didn't have newspapers back then. I'm not sure. They didn't have Skype. They didn't have text messages. But what was happening in Antioch was so exciting and so big and so newsworthy that word traveled a few hundred miles down to Jerusalem, and they heard about it, and they said, we got to find out what's happening for the gospel up there. That Antioch, that place of culture, that place of wealth, that place of luxury, that place of wickedness, is being changed by the gospel. we got to know what's happening. And so it says, they decided to send forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. Verse 23, who when he came and had seen the, what's the next three words, church? When he came and had seen the what? The grace of God. Wow. Wow. What a powerful, powerful phrase. The first thing Barnabas was struck by, according to this account, when he came to the church at Antioch, was the grace of God. When he came and saw the grace of God, there there was something different about this place. There was something different about these people. They were a grace-filled church. The first thing that he noticed was the grace of God in those people. And may I ask, is that the first thing people notice when they come to Liberty for the first time? People that interact with you on a daily basis, would they say, that person is filled with so much grace? There's something different about that person. Something different about how they they, they interact with people. There's something different about their spirit. There's something different about their words. There's something different about the way they forgive and the way that they love. And and the grace of God changed them. These people were full of grace, not full of themselves. When people interact with you and with me and when they come to our church, do they say, boy, that that church is is marked and characterized by the grace of God? Or are we characterized by our our spirit and and maybe our, our division or our judgmental spirit? When people think of us, is is the grace of God one of the first attributes that comes to their mind? Or is it, oh man, that that one, they've always got something to complain about. That, 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 That person, that church, but man, it's a divisive, angry, contentious place. Always looking for something to fight about. Boy, they're going to give you a piece of their mind about this or that or what's on the news here or the virus or this or whatever. What I see here, they said, hey Barnabas, something's happening up in Antioch. You got to go check it out. Barnabas gets there, and what does it say? When he had seen the grace of God, he was glad. He came in, and what defined that group of people was the grace of God. There is a danger for us to be defined only by what we are against rather than by who we are for. May we be so overwhelmed and overcome by the grace of God in our lives that we, like Jesus, yes, are full of grace and truth, but the grace of God, it overflows out of our lives into every interaction that we have. And on social media, the grace of God, somebody attacks us or says something we don't like, like the grace of God overflows in, into that interaction. And somebody at work mistreats you and the grace of God overflows. You know who those that are really good at giving grace to others are? You know who, who's the best, who are the best people at giving grace? Those that realize how much grace they've received. 
When we realize how much grace God has given us, it's much easier to give grace to others. But when we forget how much grace we've received, we will fail to give grace to others. Is the grace of God overflowing? Number four, I want you to see it in verse 26. Churches that change the world are growth-oriented. I'm not talking numerically here. I'm talking spiritually. Notice verse number 26. Verse 26, let's read it aloud. Ready? Begin. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. The hymn there was Saul. Barnabas went to go get Saul. Saul came, and for an entire year, the Bible says that Barnabas and Saul, they taught them, they exhorted them, that, that they would cleave unto the Lord. And it says for a year, they taught much people. What do, I in, what do I infer from that phrase? For me, I infer there was a group of people there that desired to grow. They wanted to learn. I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know more about living for Jesus. I want to know more about what it means to be a Christian. I want to know more, not less. I want more church. I want more doctrine. I want more service. I want more growth. They were growth-oriented. In American Christianity, it seems sometimes, not always, but it seems that sometimes we have to beg people to come to church. And, and I promise if you'll come, you'll enjoy it. And we're going to start this amazingly exciting new series that's unlike any you've ever seen before and you don't want to miss it and I'm going to do backflips and I'm going to stand on my head and, and I'm going to do somersaults and we're going to have a light show and after church we're going to have a fireworks show and just please I beg you pretty 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 please would you come to church and I'm, I'm glad that's not necessarily the spirit of liberty but it feels like sometimes that way we've got would you please come hear the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ would you please come learn how to better be like him and serve the one who died on the cross for you and, and, and everybody that comes will give each person $1,000 if you join one of our small groups this Wednesday. And if your kids come for four straight weeks, we promise we'll get them into Harvard and we'll pay their tuition. It just feels kind of like that. Like, like, where is the hunger? The Bible talks about in the Beatitudes, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They want to know more. They want to grow. It's not, why do we have tonight where we're starting our Sunday evening service back up at five? And this is not a guilt trip if, if you didn't know that and you're not able to make that. That's between you and the Lord. And the fact that you don't come tonight doesn't mean you don't love God or you don't want to grow. But I will tell you, I've, I've studied and prepared and I'm preaching a message on second generation Christianity. And, and if you have children or teenagers or you work with the next generation, I believe tonight's message will be a powerful reminder from God's word about how to raise up another generation of Christians and, and what is one of the keys in their lives to embracing the faith of their fathers. But, you know, it, it shouldn't be for all of us that, well, I'm, I'm going to figure out kind of consumers. Is he preaching something that I like? Then I think, I'll, oh, yeah, I'll go every Sunday to church and, and learn. And maybe I'll get involved in service. And, 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 and again, it seems like we, we beg, we, we, we promise if you'll come back tonight, we'll fix all your problems and fix your kids. And your boss will give you a raise tomorrow. Now, for me, I wouldn't miss tonight's service. And I, I've already, uh, my, my daughter's just graduated. And she's getting ready to go uh, to college. And she was supposed to work nursery tonight. And, and I told her yesterday when I found that out, I said, I'd really like if you could see if there's an adult that would switch. I want you to hear that message. That's in my own family. I want them to grow. I want, I want them to hear what God has. And, and of course, for those that are watching online, and I didn't even say welcome to those that are online, we'll be streaming that tonight. But, but, but I use that as an illustration, but here's the, the application. 
What about a people that hunger and thirst after righteousness? I want more of God and more of his word, not less. They can't get enough of the word of God. I want more fellowship and more doctrine and more service. And church and Christian service isn't something that we cram into the corner of our Sunday morning. Christ is the preeminent priority in our lives and our family schedules all week long. Some of us, while the the national shutdown happened, we complained about the fact that the government declared the church non-essential. And we were put up there with salons and, and restaurants and, and, and nail salons and barber shops. And we complain, that's not right. They're saying church is non-essential. Church is essential. Let me ask you, in your weekly schedule, how essential have you made church? And I, I'm maybe kind of preaching to the choir because you're here. So obviously you've made it essential today. But did we declare in our own lives the church non-essential long before the government did? Number five, you're listening well. Number five, they were financially generous. Verse 29, then the disciples, every man according to his ability, according to his ability, and God, you've heard it said before, it's not equal gifts, it's equal sacrifice. Every man, by the way, everyone was involved here, the, the disciples, the followers of Christ, every man according to his ability determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. There had been somebody that came up and said there's going to be a famine and, and there's going to be a dearth in the land, and this church said we have resources, we can help some people that are hurt every one of us let's do what we can and by the way churches that change the world have that spirit every person doing whatever they can to help people materially financially spiritually doing what we can to support more missionaries and to do more gospel efforts and to get more bibles to homes and to have more outreaches and to support a vacation bible school and a night in bethlehem christmas outreach and whatever it might be every man according to his ability i read the true story of a 67 year old carpenter his name was Russell Herman. He died in 1994, about 20 years ago, a little less. I guess more, however long that is, 26 years ago. In his will, he included a crazy list of promises from his estate. In his will, it it listed his plan for distribution more than $2 billion to the city of East St. Louis. Another billion and a half for the state of Illinois. Two and a half billion for the national forest system. And to top off the list, Herman left $6 trillion to the government to help pay off the national debt. Pretty generous guy. Billions, really trillions of dollars he left. Amazingly generous. Only one small problem. Herman's only asset was a 1984 Oldsmobile. He made grand pronouncements, but there was no real generosity involved. Why? Because there was nothing to back up his promises. A reminder that true generosity in our lives is not determined by the amount that we give, but by our hearts. What did Jesus say when the widow gave two mites in Matthew chapter number 12? He said, this widow has cast more in than all of those that put it into the treasury. What was he saying? That the best way to determine what we love most is not by our words, but by how we use our time and our money. And churches that change the world are generous churches. God has blessed us. We want to make a difference. We're not going to hoard it all for ourselves. We're going to try to give more. And instead of asking, you know, Pastor, can I set up a meeting to talk to you about whether or not tithing is really still in, in, in effect in the New Testament, or uh, was that just under the law in the Old Testament? For me, we're under grace, not the law. If 
you don't believe that tithing is still in effect, we always would want to do more under grace. So for me and my wife, it's not about how, how little can we just give exactly 10% of our, our regular income to the work of God. No, it's been many years that we want to do far more than that. And my goal, I'm not there yet, but it's to be where I'm at 30 or 40 or 50% of my income that is going back to the work of God. My goal every year, we try to increase our financial generosity. Why? Because we're going to get extra rewards in heaven. There is fruit that abounds to our account. No, but we want to, to take what God has given us and use it to make a difference in other people's lives. Churches that change the world are generous with the blessings they've received. Two more. Number six, they are missions-minded. Turn over to chapter 13, please. Chapter 13. This somewhat goes along with our last point. Notice this in chapter 13, speaking of the church in Antioch. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, Herod. Notice the last two words, and Saul. Kind of funny there. Saul, this one that's going to be mightily used here, he's kind of the tag on. He's at the end of the list. And Saul. By the way, I love the fact you go back to chapter 8. And Saul was consenting to the death. It starts with and Saul. He was consenting to the death. Here it's and Saul getting ready to change the world. Notice verse number two. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed unto Seleucia. And from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. Antioch, a church that changed the world, was missions-minded. The first missionaries were sent out. Churches that change the world must first have a vision for the world. Well, we want to keep Saul and Barnabas here. No. We, 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 let's, let's, as a church, be willing to send our best and our brightest to multiply the gospel in other places. In church, I want to ask us, Liberty Baptist Church, do we care about the billions around our world that have never heard the, the name of Christ? And if we do, what are we going to do about it? Will we give so that others will go? Will we pray for those that go? Will we be willing to go? Will we encourage those that are going? We as a church in October, probably to me the most important and my favorite event of the year is our missions extravaganza. We bring in missionary families and we're reminded of the need for the world. Churches that change the world have a heart for the world. They're missions-minded. They sent some of their best. These were guys that were greatly helping the church of Antioch. If you would put it in today, kind of, they were assistant pastors. They were there preaching and teaching and helping and, 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 and serving. And they said, it's time for those two to go multiply the gospel in other places. Aren't you glad that they did? Lastly, churches that change the world, turn over to chapter 14. Churches that change the world are spiritually refreshing. Spiritually refreshing. Verse 14, I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse number 23. Would you follow along? Last place we'll look this morning, and I'll be done. Chapter 14, verse 23. And when they had ordained them elders in every church, that's Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey, had ordained elders in every church, and they had prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord on whom they believed, and after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down into Italia, and thence sailed to Antioch. See that there? They sailed to Antioch from whence? 
from whence, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. They went back to this home church, this church that had sent them out uh, by the grace of God. Verse 27, and when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. I like this, verse number 28, and there they abode long time with the disciples. They came back from their missionary journey and you know what the top of conversation was? It wasn't how wicked all the cities they had been in were. It wasn't how the, 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 the Roman politicians that they didn't like in that city in the Roman Empire. It wasn't the law that was just passed. When they came together, you know what they rehearsed? When they got together at that church, they talked about how good God was. They talked about how powerful God's grace was. They talked about the life-changing power of the gospel. And I think as a church, we need to be careful as Christians. It's so easy. I've got to turn off the news sometimes in my house, and we don't watch a ton of news, but I've got to turn off the news sometimes in my, on my phone and get off of social media. And I'm not saying as Christians we should be ignorant. What I am saying is whatsoever things are lovely and pure and good and honest and of, of good report and just, whatsoever things, if there be any, uh, anything that's praiseworthy, think on these things. I've got to be careful. It's so easy to get distracted with the stuff down here that isn't going to last and forget about eternal matters. And this place was spiritually refreshing. When they came back, the Bible says they abode there long time. They just stayed for a long time. We want to be here and tell you all about what God's doing and be a part of the work of God. I hope that's your desire, and that's your heartbeat when you come to church. I can't wait. I, Connie, you walked in this morning. You didn't know what I was going to preach. And I said, I'm excited for church. And Connie said, this is the highlight of my week. What is she saying? This place is spiritually refreshing. I was talking to Pastor Tomlinson yesterday on the phone, and for those that are new in our church, he pastored here for 25 years before my wife and I came, and, and still a member of our church doing a missions ministry that sent out of our church. And Pastor Tomlinson, we were talking, and he said, my wife and I wish we could be at Liberty. We watch online. We wish we could be there every day. And here's what he said. He said, it's hard to put into words. There's just something different about Liberty. Every time we come, we're just helped and we're encouraged and, and we miss it so much. We love the people and we love what God's doing there. And, and what is he saying? I believe what he was saying is, for us, it's spiritually refreshing. I don't want us to dread gathering together. Well, I wonder what's going to, and that doesn't mean we don't deal with difficult issues. That doesn't mean we don't preach the truth. That doesn't mean it's all kumbaya and we never talk about convicting things. What it means is the grace of God defines us and, and, and this place is a place that we can rehearse the goodness and the glory of God. This was a church that changed the world. If we could put that last slide up there and I want you to see the, the summary of these things that I see in this passage. What, what, what does a church that changes the world look like? And we could probably add some things to this list, but from these, these chapters on the church at Antioch, I believe we see a church that changes the world is gospel-centered. It's all about magnifying Christ in every way that they can. It's a church that is soul-conscious. They're not just happy that they've received the gospel. They want to do whatever they can to share the gospel in their community and their circles of influence. It's a church that is grace-filled. When he saw the grace of God, he was glad. It's a church that's growth-oriented. We want more of God's word, not less. We're not pulling teeth to get people to, to commit to serving and growing and learning. No, people are saying, Wait, we want more. Can you teach us more? They were financially generous. They were missions-minded, and they were spiritually refreshing. Which of these is our church lacking? We're not a perfect church. By the way, what's the church? The church is you and the church is me. 
So which one of these did the Holy Spirit kind of prick your heart today and say, that's where you've gotten a little off track. You're not as gracious of a Christian as you should be. You've gotten a little bit of an angry spirit. You're not as generous of a Christian as you should be. You've gotten a little selfish. You're not as soul conscious as you should be. You've gotten a little complacent. Which one of it is? Unless you're a far better Christian than your pastor, if you're anything like me, there's more than one that I look at and say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not meeting up there. I need to work on that one. Why? Because I do want to see liberty change Orange County for the better with the gospel. I believe in many ways it already has, and it is. I'm not saying we haven't done anything, but I believe, and I think you would agree with me, our Orange County needs more of the gospel. Los Angeles, as we move out that way, and California, and the country, and the world, we need more of the gospel, not less. And I want liberty, along with thousands and tens of thousands of other Bible-preaching churches all around our world, I want us to understand these are some of the things that a church can be that will change the world. So, where, what, which of these is our church lacking? Really, the question is, which of these are you and I lacking? Those seven characteristics, I believe, are a great blueprint of a church that will change the world. Church family, let's try to be that church. Let's look at the church at Antioch as a wonderful pattern for what we could be. The Spirit. Twelve little verses, but a whole lot of characteristics of a wonderful church. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.